Hello, and welcome to our latest episode of 30 for Net Zero 30. I'm Anna-Marie Slott, Global Sustainability and ESG Partner here at Ashurst, and we're speaking with 30 changemakers around the globe about actions to take now to deliver on 2030 goals. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Ulf Erlandsson, founder and CEO of the Anthropocene Fixed Income Institute, who's based in Sweden. AFFI is a nonprofit organization dedicated to monitoring and advocating for the use of fixed income markets for climate change mitigation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ulf. Um, you have a fascinating background in the world of sustainability. Perhaps you could share a little bit more about yourself and, and, and how you come to be where you are today. Yes, uh, thank you for having me, Anna-Marie. Um, very nice uh, to be here. Um, so my background, I'm an economics PhD from the beginning. I spent a number of years in investment banking, credit derivatives prior to the great financial crisis. So I have a certain degree of atonement to do, probably. Uh, I ran um, corporate bond portfolios and um, uh, something called the SSA portfolios at AP4, so one of the Swedish state pension funds uh, for a large number of years, which was really where I started looking into the sustainability dimension of fixed income very early on in, in, in terms of the green bond market. Um, but that was also a place where I had revelations that it doesn't only matter the good things you buy in a portfolio. It's really the footprint of the bad things that you own in your portfolio and um, that, that that matter a lot. So I've been doing a lot of that thinking um, over the years and thinking about how do we, you know, both buy the good, but also sell the bad and what is uh, the drivers behind that for uh, fixed income players. And then um, uh, a few years back, I got offered to uh, launch this uh, nonprofit institute, AFII, uh, which is focusing on you know, leveraging my market practitioner background and the team's market practitioner background to inspire other fixed income investors to uh, you know tilt and change their uh, capital um, in in a more climate aligned way interesting so so um so somebody from the inside who's who's now uh, who's now come out and and started to focus around sustainability I mean, what is that shift? I mean, having having been a market participant yourself, what what is the biggest shift that you've seen in the last sort of eighteen months or so regarding sustainability in the financial markets? Well, things are uh, sh uh, shifting rapidly, I have to say. And thinking, you know, eighteen months back, um, we actually had a big sort of action we were doing with AFII, which was uh, with regards to. Uh, Russian thermal coal mining company, um, which came with an inaugural US dollar benchmark bond, so a big bond deal in September 2021. So just a couple of weeks prior to the COP26 climate meeting. And we were just uh, uh, gobsmacked or flabbergasted or whatever expression you want to do, very surprised by uh, some you know, very climate committed parties, it seemed, to bring this deal uh, to the market. Now, that deal, I think, wouldn't be able to come to market today, uh, not only because it was Russian, but is uh, this thermal coal mining deal going into broad public markets. Um, end of last year, we looked at another case, a company in Singapore called uh, uh, Semcorp, who were actually trying to sell themselves some coal assets and get rid of them. But it's almost impossible to get uh, funding for that uh, uh, nowadays. So markets have shifted around uh, uh, to a degree where certain parts of you know non-climate aligned as uh, assets are not getting uh, access to finance, and and especially when it comes to coal and thermal coal mining, 
um, that that has shifted. Just in 18 months, it's gone from it was quite possible to do to almost impossible to do. Yeah, and that's actually really fascinating, right? There's been there's a, a lot of talk and there's a lot of uh, you know turbulence in the markets around you know what is uh, happening, what's not happening, is are things moving? Are they not moving? But you know th th they are moving actually, and things that were viable two years ago or, or eighteen months ago may may no longer be viable as as uh, you know as the market participants really do kind of gear up and start paying more attention. Um, I guess. What, you know, you, you spend a lot of time really deep diving in on some of the instruments that are in the market and, and in particular focusing, I think, on how investors uh, can approach things or look at look at different um, aspects of what's going on in the market. What do you think are sort of the most impactful steps that investors can take in the next two to three years, real, real game changers to deliver on this this transition? So I'm 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 gonna be and as a fixed fixed income guy, I'm used to that. We're all always the boring guys. Uh, we have very large portfolios. We live on something called carry and roll down, which is you know getting a little bit maybe a basis point here, a basis point there uh, every other day. And we look in awe with our, our on our equity colleagues who can you know make twenty fifteen percent uh, on a good trade on a good day. We never do that, but I think that same. Uh, 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 thinking applies to when I think about how you actually manage fixed income and, uh, you know, to be impactful. It is being there the whole time, constantly realigning your portfolios, um, constantly shifting your capital uh, in your fixed income book from something which is bad or not great to something which is slightly better. And you continuously keep on doing that and being uh, tenacious and having the patience and stamina to actually uh, uh, be applying yourself that way. I think that's the way to big uh, to drive the big sort of secular transition trend rather than hoping for like the big sort of uh, um, single action that's going to be there. Having said that, there is one particular uh, uh, instrument that that sort of excites uh, myself and the team, and I think is a is a great uh, way to engage for investors, and that's in something called sustainability linked bonds, where you build in some uh, contractual uh, conditionality into the bond contract, um, such that you know the issuer of the bond needs to perform according to some uh, sustainability targets and. If they don't, they get a higher interest rate, or if they do, they might get a lower interest rate. You can you know play around with that. I think it's a very uh, uh, it's an instrument with uh, an, a huge potential, and I think that if investors engage with issuers to say, let's do this sustainability structure, but let's have an ambitious target and let's have a big differentiation between the interest rate you're going to pay if you succeed versus if you don't succeed, so that you as an issuer you see a lower cost of capital. Uh, if you actually succeed with the performance targets. Um, there, there, there are good sort of pricing ways to get around this, option pricing and so on. And uh, I think there's a lot of stars aligning around that uh, uh, instrument. So I, I really hope that uh, you know people engage in, 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 in that sphere. It has had a little bit of a bad rep, but uh, there, there's uh, uh, plenty of opportunities. It, it does have a very good potential of actually lowering the cost of capital on the issuer side because, well, you can look at this as a traditional bond with an option attached to it. And the size of that option depends, then, you know, uh, um, decides on how big the straight bond coupon should be. So uh, a coal company that might be financing at 6% 
if they continue to be coal, can suddenly ac access, uh, for, for example, uh, capital at 4% interest rate if they commit to living up to these targets. And if they don't, then they're going to have to pay a much higher interest rate. Um, and, and getting that transition going um, uh, through the SLB structures is, is a, quite an exciting op opportunity, I think. No, exactly. And it, it's a, such a young instrument, really. I mean, you look at the entire kind of um, really commercial corporate um, green bond market. That's only from 2014 when ICMA put out its green bond principles, right? So so that market itself is less than 10 years old. And the sustainability linked market, which I think really opens up the fixed income world to all companies who are ready to commit and be honest and, and you know, have a plan and commit to that plan um, is, 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 is so much younger even. It's only a couple of years old. Um, but as you say, hu huge potential um, there in terms of really driving transition for, for, for everyone. So another important thing I think that uh, specifically fixed income investors can be engaging in um, is to look across the whole fixed income value chain. And what I, I mean by that is um, a lot of this analysis has come out of the corporate sector and especially well done from the equity side. Naturally, that's only corporates. And then that has been applied in, in the fixed income corporate bond side. But fixed income is so much more than that. Uh, obviously, you have sovereign bonds. And how do you actually engage and work with sovereign bond issuers, governments, in terms of uh, climate issues? You also have this very important uh, middle layer, what I call the uh, supra sovereigns and agencies, the SSA sector, which contains you know, the multilateral development banks, the subnational investment banks, and, 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 and such. And as a matter of fact, uh, especially the SSA sector is quite engaged in uh, uh, large infrastructure projects. They have a lot of uh, things to say and finance in terms of both green and fossil investments. And it's a sector that people generally don't know or think about. Um, we, for example, have written a lot this year about the, the, the German uh, development bank, KfW, Kreditanstalt für Wiederaufbau, which you know, has been one of the biggest green bond issuers in the world. But at the same time, they've also been used as sort of a wallet to finance the bailout of Uniper and the, you know, the completely failed uh, uh, strategy in terms of betting on Russian oil and coal or gas and coal. Uh, and how do you engage with an issuer like KFW in order to look that that actually strategy going forward aligns to the target you have as an investor? Um, I think there's that's that's an area which is underdeveloped as it is right now. It's been so much focus on corporates, but think about the whole fixed income value chain, uh, and there will be a lot of the, the additionality here of the fixed income investor is that if you look at someone like KFW, they're not speaking to any other investors. It's only the lenders, the bond investors, that are sort of uh, engaging with them. So it's a, it's an even more crucial role that bond investors have to have to play there. No, definitely. And I, I think that's a fair point. I mean, there's a, and there's always the question, right? Because fixed income, where it sits in the stack of what people use it for, um, right, between equity and, and fixed income, um, and the different kind of tenors and, and time periods that people look at in that world, I think has always been a, a bit of a challenge to get fixed income investors who are looking at a kind of, you know, a three-year horizon to think about then, you know, what's the 2030 
um, impact of that or the 2050 impact of that and that the, the creditworthiness of that com company. Um, that that's a very good point, and that's another thing that you know I I'm excited by uh, by fixed income, uh, obviously, but thinking about the ways you can look at your exposures to uh, uh, climate alignment over time. So it matters if you invest in a two-year bond or a 30-year bond uh, of an issuer. And maybe you should you know, uh, invest more in the short data to, work, to see if they actually start achieving targets and say, you know, we're not providing you with 30-year money uh, because we're not sure you're doing exactly or aligning the way we want to. So playing the curves on this and we also see some analysis that we've done very recently that if you look at the long end of the curve, 30 years out, now we're talking, you know, uh, past 2050. Mm -hmm. If you're buying a 30-year bond now in an oil company, what's their strategy? Where are they supposed to be at 20, uh, uh, 2053? Well, that's that's often a hard question uh, for them to respond to or give give more detail uh, to, um, especially those who are non-aligned. So. No, exactly. And I think that you're going to see that coming to the market more and more, right, with all the focus on transition plans and with people having to put, you know, actual concrete steps behind net zero commitments, which are right and good. You need to go out and say your net zero commitment, but you also need to say, okay, what does that look like to me in a three year? What does that look in a five? What does that look in a seven? What does that look in 10 in order to get where I'm going? And I think having that information out into the markets will help those fixed income people because everyone has to refi, right? Even if you're going into a three year paper, you know, no one, there are very few industries that I've ever come across where you just pay off everything in full at the end. Everybody's in a, in a refi world. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and again, I think fixed income is much more powerful than people generate a knowledge, right? That's, it, it's definitely one where a lot of the activity is happening in primary markets. So it, it's actually transaction is happening between me as an investor, or I'm not an investor, but when, but when I was, and the the borrowers, i.e. the companies who are receiving the money, that's a straight cash flow there. Um, and it's uh, that's different compared to the secondary market argument you have in equities, right? Where it's just uh, you and I, we can trade Exxon shares, but Exxon doesn't really care. Um, and hence, it also matters when fixed income investors say we're not investing in this because there's no one else to repl uh, replace them. Uh, the the issuer then needs to go and say, okay, we need to pay a higher interest rate to to get other investors involved to fill our books, uh, and 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 that's a quite a direct sort of cash bottom line uh, effect of fixed income investors' decisions on allocating capital that happens then at the the corporate level. We're now to the point where I we always ask everybody, um, you know, what what about yourself? What is your own commitment? You're you're in Sweden. Um, I believe most of your time, at least. Um, so, so what are you doing uh, in 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 your household? Um, so we're just about to um, put in the order for you know the solar panels on, on the roof, uh, and that's that, that sounds uh, sort of boring, but it, it starts getting to this this uh, self sufficiency uh, mm -hmm. excitement around you know you if you get the solar panels then you can charge your car and you can decide when to and we got e-bikes which which we traveled with and so on so that's that's uh, uh, that's that's something on that um, having said that you know I travel by bike to work a lot and uh, city planning is actually something that is engaging me quite a lot uh, and uh, is probably something that where I you know might have some extracurricular. Uh, net zero uh, uh, activities in terms of getting 
well, we see cities, I see structures out there built for, you know, middle-aged men like myself, but driving big SUVs rather than those who are uh, doing it in a better climate line way. So um, plenty, plenty of stuff to influence on the local uh, policy uh, dimension. Interesting. Yeah, we've we've done some interesting conversations around cities and the and the and how cities can really become sustainable. Um, so, last question. Um, you know, you, you've been a market participant. You're now you're now really in depth looking at it from that perspective of how to how to get the markets really firing up and and delivering on climate um, change. What, in terms of an action or a takeaway for our listeners. What, what would that be? Um, so I think, and again, as a fixed income person, you're quite used to like large numbers and small numbers. So what's, uh, you know, 5 billion times one basis point and so on. Uh, actually, one of the things that led me into thinking around climate change and you know, the climate footprint of what we do is actually learning the numbers around carbon emissions. So start out, for example, you, we uh, generally calculate we have a remaining carbon budget of... Uh, uh, 300 to 500 gigatons of CO2 emissions. Now, how much is that related to your own personal, uh, you know, emissions footprint, which is roughly 10 to uh, 20 tons per annum? And then, but more interesting, perhaps, is that when you see stories and headlines out there, and you can start doing these calculations quickly, you start to realize how big things and how big decisions are being made in some places. For example, there's a story uh, from a few weeks back around um, BP uh, looking to develop uh, uh, a deep sea field of Newfoundland and Labrador, um, equivalent to 5 uh, billion barrels of uh, oil. Now, that's such a number. How do you relate to that? Well, if you learn the mathematics around this, then you can quickly say that, okay, one barrel of oil is roughly 0.4 tons of uh, CO2, hence 5 billion uh, barrels is equivalent to 2 billion tons or 2 gigatons of CO2 emissions. And then you can relate that 2 gigatons of CO2 emissions to the 500 gigatons we have of uh, the remaining carbon budget. And then you realize, oh, this is a big decision. This is something that is like really relating to you know, this, this budget that we have. So getting a grasp of those numbers, because it's very easy to make it anonymous and not care. Um, if you don't have hold of that, but just like sit down and try to figure out the difference between the megatons, the gigatons, the annual emissions, the remaining budgets and so on. I, I, I find that very compelling. I try to teach that in some of the courses I do as well. Yeah. So so helping perspective, I think, you know, providing perspective to people in the conversation and talking about, you know, how we make these changes. That's been fantastic. Thank you so much all for, for joining us. Thank you for sharing your, your insights with us today. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it worthwhile. To learn more about the issues we've just covered, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. This 30 for net zero 30 episode is just one small part of our continuing podcast series, ESG Matters at Ashurst. Make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, you can also listen to our other episodes and leave a rating or review. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.